My name is Ed and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. Grateful to be in a meeting tonight. Grateful to be sober. Um, my sobriety date is February 11th, 2008. Um, it's not my first date. Um, I got uh, introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous in January of 1992 at the Wilderness Treatment Center for Boys in Wilsaw, Montana. Yeah. I had my first drink of alcohol when I was 13. It's a Budweiser, kind of a can, and I hated it. it didn't taste good to me. Um, I had a, an interesting childhood. My um, mother remarried a Mormon dude when I was four. Before I was born, my dad left my mom for another dude down in LA and we lived up in Northern California. So that was interesting. And um, that Mormon church taught me about God. Uh, God was punishing and he was judgmental. And if you didn't do everything right, you were going to hell. And that was kind of beaten into my head. And um, what I learned was is my father, as much as I loved him because of his lifestyle choices, he was going to hell and he was a bad person and I shouldn't love him and I shouldn't want anything to do with him. And um, I couldn't reconcile with that as a young person. And um, I was very lonely. My mom remarried that dude and he had four kids. My mom had me and my brother and then they had three more together. Good Mormon family, there was nine of us. And uh, it was just complete chaos. My mother did not have the skills to raise nine children and um, a lot of physical abuse and other kinds of abuse in that household. And what I learned is how to keep good secrets. What I learned is, is how to put a good front up for everybody to see and um, not tell the truth about what's really going on. And so um, I stand before you today, a 50-year-old man, acutely aware of who I am. I am a liar, a cheat, and a thief. That's not who I am today, but that's who I can be if, um, if I allow myself to be who I really am. And um, so fast forward, um, at 13, I got tired of the physical abuse and I said, screw this. I ran away from my mom's house and I moved in with my dad and his lover up in Northern California. And my life was great. Until 17, I was living in the pool house, smoking weed and drinking every day. Girlfriends stay over. And one day we were going out to the store to get some snacks and come back and my dad had gone into uh, my room where I lived in the pool house and um, found my stash and found the alcohol in the refrigerator. He didn't think much of that. So just before my 18th birthday, I kicked out and um, he ran me out that day and I came back the next day and all my stuff was in this giant pile in the, in the driveway. And um, that was it. I packed up and I left moved in with my sister and her family and uh, got a job. I was a customer service rep at the good guys. 
worked in the back, moving TVs around, stereos. It was the greatest life. So fun. I worked with a bunch of older people that all partied and have a great time. And um, at 18 years old, I found myself walking into bars with them. And um, I was their mascot. They poured lots of alcohol in me and watched me just spin. I was like one of those toys that they pulled the string on and I would just spin like a whirling dervish. And um, I got my first DUI in um, late 1991. I was 20 years old. Um, I almost hit a street sergeant of a of cop of the town that, that I was in at the time, pulling out of a parking lot of a bar, TR's Bar and Grill in Concord, California, drinking peach kamikazes that night. Ooh. And uh, pull out of the parking lot because I thought it was a good idea to go home in a blackout. And um, when I pulled out of the parking lot, the cop was coming and I almost hit him and then pulled into a parking lot. And um, he asked me to step out of the car and I couldn't walk and I fell on the ground and I looked up at him and I said, officer, I shouldn't be driving. And um, I had my dignity before that, but the cop just walked over to the cop car, opened the back door and I crawled from the sidewalk into the back <laughs> of the cop car. And um, I remember looking up from the sidewalk across the street into TR's bar and grill and seeing the people that I worked with all staring out the window, watching all of this happen. I spent the night in um, Concord city jail that night and they let me out the next morning and I walked home and I went to, um, went to work the next morning and I walked in the door and the whole team that I worked, there must've been 40 of them all broke out into thunderous applause as I walked through the door. And um, that was so confusing to me. Um, that incomprehensible demoralization, I really didn't know what that was, but I knew that I really screwed up, really screwed up. And um, a month or two later, I was called into the office of that job. And uh, there was two guys, these two Japanese guys, Tad Hayashi and Will G. Chin, I remember. They said, Ed, the next time you screw up, the next time you call in late, next time you make a mistake, you're out of here. Or you can go to, go to treatment. And I was weighing my options and my parents weren't gonna support me anymore. I had to pay my rent. So I guess I can get disability. I'll go, I'll go, go to treatment. Where do I go? This guy I worked with had gone to the Wilderness Treatment Center for Boys sometime earlier. And um, I don't know, it sounded cool. Go, go to Montana, two months. That sounds all right. So I got on a bus in Concord, California and rode it to Montana, 36 hours. I don't know how I made it. Um, alcohol, I don't know if it was my problem at that point, if the switch had been flipped at that point. Um, I did anything. I was a garbage disposal. Anything that you put in front of me, I did. And I did it until I couldn't do anymore. Um, my nickname at that time was Eddie the Puker. 
and my name was Eddie the Puker for good reason. It was because I drank until I puked and then I puked so I could drink some more. And I'm sorry to be so vulgar and graphic with that description, but that's the truth. I live with two older guys on this hill in this house that had this amazing view, but it was just this broken old shack on top of this hill. And we would have parties and they would just be these crazy events where the wheels would just come off every single time. And um, it was training for me, but I was lost. I had no direction, um, didn't pay my rent, didn't have a driver's license, no insurance, taillight out, bad registration, living in my rear view mirror all the time and uh, never driving legally. And um, that was scary, but what's the big deal? I just pour whatever kind of alcohol I was doing at the time um, all over it. So in um, the early nineties, I moved down to San Diego, fell in love with outside issues and um, you know, I was, I was convinced that the FBI was out looking for me. You know, I was up for 17 days at a time, losing 30 pounds, eyes all sucked in, um, halfway dead. And I called my aunt and I said, Annie Joe, I'm not safe. And she says, go straight to the airport. There'll be a ticket waiting for you. And um, I took those outside issues with me and I went up to my aunt and uncle's house and um, I remember driving around with my uncle, my uncle asking me, hey, if you brought any of that stuff with you, you know, would you have the strength to throw it away? Oh, I don't have any of that. I don't have any of that, <laughs> you know, and um, just lost. I remember writing some of those nights while I would just sit awake because I couldn't sleep, just writing stuff down. And every once in a while, when I think it's a good idea, I bring those writings out and remind me how bad it used to be. Um, fast forward 15 years, well, actually 2000, I moved to Southern California and that's really when I crawled into, into a bottle. I was too much of a sissy to go cop drugs in Santa Ana and there was a liquor store down on the corner and I could go and buy whatever I was drinking at that time. Cause I would drink a certain kind of alcohol for a period of time. And then I'd move off of that and drink that for a period of time. Rumple mints and Tawaka and rum and Cokes and brandy and Cokes right at the end. And um, it just was a horrible feeling. And um, It wasn't until the end that I realized that I couldn't stop. And uh, so in 1992, I went to that treatment center for boys and I know I'm bouncing around a lot, um, but I'm just speaking as the thoughts come to me and um, came back out of that 60 day treatment center and started drinking immediately. Um, I was not ready at 20 to get sober. 
So I continued to drink and use for the next 15 years until I got my second DUI. And I got my second DUI in February 2nd, 2007. Super Bowl Sunday that year, in fact. Um, I was working at a nightclub at the end of the 55 freeway in Costa Mesa called Club Vegas. And uh, I worked at the front door. And um, the promoters would supply me with large amounts of whatever I was drinking at the time. And again, it was like I was their mascot. You know, they would, they would pour the, the alcohol as much as I wanted until that last night where I was in a blackout at the front door and my buddy who owned the club pulled me off and says, you know, you're, you're too drunk. Go dry out in the office. And um, I thought it was a good idea to get in my car and drive home. So got in the Jeep, put the navigation for home and um, woke up in a blackout in Fullerton somewhere. To this day, I still don't know where I was. I was in my, my car parked alongside one of those barriers that prevents you from driving off the side of a cliff. My car still running, my foot on the brake. <coughs> and I come to with police lights and you know they, they shine you, the light right in your, in your mirror so it flashes in your face. And um, so um, that's my, my first 13 minutes. My sponsor gave me some direction today before I came. So 13 minutes of what it was like. And then uh, I'll move on to 13 minutes of what happened. And that, that second DUI is what happened for me. When I came to with those lights in my mirror, I knew everything at that moment was going to change. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew that I couldn't keep on the path that I was on. And so two, three o'clock in the morning, don't know where I'm at, coming to realizing that I can't stop drinking and that um, I don't want to be arrested and lose my stuff. And um, standing at the cop car with my phone ringing, my wife calling and calling and calling, and finally the police officer answers. And um, this, is, this is the moment in my life that I really came to what incomprehensible demoralization really is. Um, got arrested, Fullerton, North County Jail, little four by four chain link. It's not even really a cell, just a dog cage, really. Um, and they let me out that next morning. And that particular jail, they put me out the front door and it's about a 300 foot walk from the front door of that jail to where my wife was parked in the, in the car at the curb. And um, that 300 foot walk was when um, I became willing. I became willing to do whatever. And I remember I got in that car and I left my friend that owned that nightclub a message said, don't ever call me again. I don't want anything to do with you or those people. Forget I ever existed. And from that moment on, I never went back to work at that nightclub. I didn't get sober at that point, but it put me on the path to get where I'm at today, celebrating 14 years sober with you guys. 
And um, so drive home and um, feel really horrible and what's gonna happen next. And next thing I know is that they take my driver's license away from me, but I'm so important and I got a job and a family and all of this stuff. And um, so I go to DUI classes because I need to keep my driver's license. And um, week after week, go to those education classes and the counseling classes. I'm sure many of you know what that's all about. And during the, it was during the education portion of that program where um, the cotton came out of my ears and I was able to hear a message that made sense to me. And um, as I've been talking, I've been talking about driving a lot because that was my deal. If I was drunk, I got in my car to drive. I would drive to the mailbox to get the mail. Um, and there was this crusty old timer, Mike F was his name, that did the education part of that program. And that was not Alcoholics Anonymous message or anything like that. But um, he shared one time that he can get in his car at any time of day or night and drive anywhere that he wants to and not have to worry about getting arrested. And I was like, well, really? That's something that I want. That was the first thing that attracted me to this program. And um, so during that program, I, was, I started drinking at the end. I told my wife when she picked me up that morning, I said, I'm not going to drink for, I don't know if it was 30 or 90 days, but at like day 85. I heard her give me permission. She may not have given me permission, but I heard her give me permission. And um, it didn't take long and I was sneaking brandy and Cokes and drinking. And, you know, I already told you that whenever I drank, I drove. And so I was out one time and drove to the liquor store and came back. And I remember she, she was walking out of the house at the garage door and I was walking in drunk with another bottle yet again. And I remember she caught me with my son at that door. And she says, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing? Are you really wanting to throw this all away? And there it was, incomprehensible demoralization again, that feeling in the bottom of my gut of now they know about me. This is really who I am. And uh, I'm willing to throw it all away because I can't control my alcohol. It was the first time in my life that I really understood what it meant to be powerless over alcohol. Because I, I, I drank when I didn't want to drink. I drank when I was drunk. And I didn't drink because I liked the taste of it. I didn't drink because I was a social drinker. I drank to get effed up. I drank to blackout. I drank to make everything that was not right in my world go away. And um, that meant that I drank until I blacked out. So I continued to go to that DUI program and Mike F kept sharing. And it was the end of that six month program. And it was my last counseling appointment, my very last counseling and um, I was done with my counseling session. I was walking out saying goodbye to everyone. And, and I don't know where it came from because like I shared earlier, 
the God that I knew, he was a punishing, angry God. He wasn't going to help me. Um, but I remember saying this prayer. I don't know where the prayer came from. They weren't my words. And I just said them in my mind. I said, God, let me ask this dude for help. I was like, whoa. And there he was. I remember he came out from the left-hand side. I could see him in my mind's eye. And I said, Mike, can I talk to you a second? Can you see me private? I want to I change some stuff about my life. And you talked about being able to drive anywhere. How do, how do I do that? And so for the next little while, I paid that dude $50 a week to tell me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. <laughs> and that's the truth. My wife and my son and I all went to see him because my family was on board with me getting sober at the time. And um, he would fall asleep while I was talking. And um, I could talk for the whole hour. I don't know why I was so concerned about being able to speak for 40 minutes because I could speak for that whole hour and he'd just be nodding off. And I remember my wife asking me, doesn't that bother you? No, just doesn't bother him. But you're paying him. I know, but I'm paying him $50 a week to tell me to go to alcoholics anonymous meetings. So um, during that DUI uh, class, they had me sign, get my court card signed, go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And I didn't know you could sign your own court card at the time. And uh, so um, I would go to the Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And so I found a meeting that was halfway in between my house and my work at the time. One that was convenient for me that I could just go get my court card signed, show up right when the meeting started and leave right at the meeting ended. Just do my minimum get my court card signed and I can go back and tell that guy, here's my check for 50 bucks. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. But what I didn't know was going to happen was you people, you people happened to me. And um, I was unsuspecting of that. I didn't see it coming. And um, I was just sweetly reasonable at the time. And I'd go to the meeting late or right at the last minute and sit down and listen and then leave. And one day I got there a little bit too early. <laughs> and there was this group of guys that sat in the same seats every week. You know who they are. Same meetings. It's always a group of guys that get there just a few minutes before the meeting and chit chat, talking about all of us before we get there. Because we're important, don't you know? And uh, I remember them turning around one time and asking me, do you have a sponsor? And I go, yeah, I got a sponsor. I pay him $50 a week to tell me to go to Alcoholics <laughs> They go, no, 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 a sponsor. And I was like, okay, um, but you know, how do you do that? And they go, just go to meetings and listen. And when somebody shares something, that, you res that resonates with you, that has a message that makes sense to you, that you think that they have something that you want, ask them to be your temporary sponsor and try them out. Go, oh, yeah, I can do that. So this dude comes and shares about being a pot smoker and how he smoked pot every single day. And I heard the words come out of his mouth. It was like, it was like the clouds parted and the sun came down and the angels started to sing. It was like, oh. And um, it's like, that's the guy. So I followed him out after the meeting and I said, hey, I really don't know how to do this, but they told me, 
you know, to ask you to be my temporary sponsor. And what I didn't know at the time that I know now is that dude was perfect for me. He was exactly what I needed at that moment. And that's the story of my sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous is somehow, some way, I get exactly what I need at that moment. May not be what I want, but it's exactly what I need. And um, so I asked that dude to be my temporary sponsor. He says, there's no such thing as a temporary sponsor. But you call me every day and, um, you know, yeah, go to some meetings and, uh, you know, see how it goes. Maybe I was his temporary sponsee. <laughs> I don't Knowing him now, I know that's not true. I don't know why I said that, but... Um, you know, I have that same sponsor today, 15 years later. And I say 15 because my first sobriety date this time around was August 8th, 2007. So I got my second DUI February 2nd, 2007. I finally got sober that first time when I asked that dude for help. And he told me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And Jonathan and Ed and Ed, Ask me, do you have a sponsor? It's right around that time where I go, oh, maybe this, this is all right. I think I can do this. Um, and so the first thing is, is, is we did step one. And um, he had me write out step one. He had me write out why I'm powerless over alcohol. That was an easy step for me. I was powerless over alcohol because I couldn't stop putting it in my mouth and buying it. And um, my life was unmanageable because I couldn't stop drinking and driving and getting DUIs. And um, so I wrote that out and I remember meeting him at Corner Bakery over on Lake Forest and reading that first step from him. And um, it was all very weird. I don't know if you guys have had that experience, but um, I never really sat down with another man before then and like had a, a conversation about the truth about myself. And I was sweetly reasonable at that moment to tell the truth. I don't know why, but I was. For the first time, I was willing to tell a complete stranger why I thought I was powerless over alcohol. And... Um, After we worked step one, we worked step two, came to believe. That's the one where it started to get a little bit trickier for me because then all those God issues that I was talking about earlier came back up. And um, remember sharing my struggle. And I think we sat in the same table at the same corner bakery. And um, he wrote down on the paper, he, she, it, dot, dot, dot. And he says, write down on this paper your perception of your higher power, God, whatever you want it to be. Because I was telling him all the reasons, you know, they told me this, but God's punishing and judgmental. You know, I don't want anything to do with a God. He's like, create your own. 
write down on this paper, if you could imagine your God, what attributes, what qualities would that God have? It's like, really? I can do that? I didn't know that. You know, I thought that God was like written down in like the stuff that they fed me when I was a kid, right? And so that I was like, okay, I can do that. And so my God was no longer, this God that I had invented was no longer this judgmental punishing God that was telling me that my dad was going to hell because like dudes instead of ladies. And um, it was like a whole new way of thinking about it. It's like, I got this new toy, but I don't even know how to play it. I don't even know what to do with it. And then we move on to step three. And um, step three is, is where the magic started to happen for me. I remember sharing about struggling with it at my home group. My home group is a do it sober group. Happens uh, Monday through Sunday, 7.30 on Moulton at United Methodist Church. And that's where I um, got and stayed sober today. Um, and I remember sharing about the difficulty of making a decision to turn my will and my life over care of God as I understood him. And there was this dude that went to that meeting that had absolutely nothing that I wanted. His name is Jim Shields. Maybe some of you know him. Um, he was a grumpy son of a gun, um, had absolutely nothing that I wanted. Absolutely nothing. And I shared about, you know, oh, I can't do step three because of all of the reasons that I've given you, you know, laid my case out. And that man that I had such disdain for walked out with me of that meeting, put his arm around me. And he said, Ed, all you need to know is that there is a God and you ain't it. And um, he handed me a, a set of Joe and Charlie CDs. He says, you should listen to these. So here's this man that I had all kinds of resentment because he was angry and I really just didn't like him. And here he was giving me the nugget, one of the, the great nuggets of my sobriety. There is a God and I'm not it. And um, I happened to be unemployed at the time. And I was like a sponge ready to soak up all this AA stuff that you guys were, were selling. And um, I was ready to hear. I was ready to hear. And so I put those Joe and Charlie CDs on. And I know that that's not AA-approved literature, but it's part of my story. It's what part of the magic, part of the secret sauce of my sobriety. And um, it walks, Joe Charlie walks through these steps um, in their big book comes alive and, and they explain it in very simple terms and simple terms that an uneducated person like myself can really get, get my mind around. I remember when I first started coming around, they would tell me, um, the old timers in my crew, you know, the guys came before me, my sponsor, my grand sponsor, my great grand sponsor would tell me, you know, you can't be too stupid to get this program but you can be too smart. And so whenever things get complicated, I try to dumb it down. And that Joe and Charlie did that for me. And um, what I heard at that time was made a decision. They compared it to going on a trip. Like if I want to go to Phoenix, I need to make a decision to go to Phoenix before I actually go to Phoenix. And 
Words are important. It's another thing that I learned at Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I read just the black part on the page. It's made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. And so I could get my mind around that. I can make a decision. I don't have to do it. Just have to make a decision to do it. And you could see this theme of me just being willing a little half step at a time, just half step at a time. And um, that higher power that I said, God, please help me ask this dude for help. Um, then made me willing to memorize the third step prayer and the serenity prayer. And so part of my sobriety has been, except for when I don't, is when I get into a stuff, tough spot in my head as I say those two prayers over and over and over. Sometimes just over and over and over in my head to shut up. You know, the, the, the voices that tell me oh, what a piece of crap I am and how I'm not good enough. And I've got this, this disease that... Um, you know, I've got a massive ego with an inferiority complex and um, I'm all I ever think about. And so that higher power coming into my life was a new way of living that I didn't know existed before that you people introduced to me. Um, around that same time, I raised my hand to be a coffee maker on the Sunday morning meeting. And our buddy Kelly N was a secretary at the time. And that commitment was so important to me because it drew me into the center of the pack. Um, I'm a pretty social person. And so when you make coffee, people come to the meeting early to drink their coffee. This is a morning meeting, 7.30 a.m. So people are drinking a lot of coffee. And um, I remember just that experience of making coffee drew me into the middle of that group. And so when I found it necessary to take prescription medication, um, unlike the way that it was described to me, um, and I came up with a new sobriety date, February 11th, 2008, I remember coming to that meeting and raising my hand as a newcomer and just losing it. And crying. I remember going back into the kitchen because I didn't want to cry in front of you. And um, standing at that coffee maker, being so worried that you guys were going to kick me out. I knew for sure that you were going to kick me out. You were going to take that coffee commitment away. And then my ego was going to kick in. And then I was going to say, F you and I'm never going to come back. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. And I remember Kelly coming, putting his arm around me and saying, it's going to be okay. They didn't kick me out. Um, one thing that I love about Alcoholics Anonymous is that there are no rules. I don't know about your program. I can only speak for my program. One of the things that attracted to me is that there are no rules in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a wrench for every nut. There's as, way to, as many ways to do this program as there are people. At least that's what the people that I believe tell me. And that works for me because I hear things like, wear this program like a loose garment. The hell does that mean? Wear this like a loose garment. Okay, so I can just be chill with this, right? I don't have to take this thing all so seriously because I don't do 
anything perfect. There's only one thing that I do perfect every single day for the past 14 years. And that's not take and consume any alcohol one day at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time. And um, through, the, through the power of the steps. Step four, um, I started working step four after I worked step three. And at the time I was hanging on to a group of fellows that were all going in the same direction. And on Thursday nights, we'd go have dinner before going to a meeting. And we'd all meet in South County, have dinner, and then drive to Charlie Street. And at Charlie Street, we read the first step out of the 12 and 12 every Thursday night for years and years and years, that same crew of guys would go to Charlie Street. And I got a commitment at Charlie Street, work with, work with the drunks there. And um, I've kept that commitment for now going on 12 years. And um, I remember asking my grand sponsor, walking into Charlie Street one night, because I was writing my fourth step on the computer. And I remember there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines on that thing. And I wasn't doing the columns. I wasn't doing, I was just writing all of my results, writing all of my, you know, all of my, just going on with all of the things that I had done wrong. And I says, you know, it, my fifth step's going to take me days. My sponsor, my grand sponsor at the time, Tim said, just write the things that might get you drunk. You don't have to do it all at once. And again, that was just a, a, another set of training wheels to make it dumbed down for me just enough that I could get through it. And so those hundreds and hundreds of lines got watered down to the real big things that I really were weighing on me, that were the rocks in my backpack that were really, really weighing me down. Did a fifth step, wasn't that bad? Sponsor says, I've heard much worse. And I, I don't know if he was being honest with me or if that's just what I remember hearing, but I wasn't that bad. And that was okay because I got through my fifth step. And then the sixth step, sixth step, you know, just a little reading step in the book, a little bit of meditation. And then humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Well, I got a lot of those. And, um, Six and seven are where the magic has happened for me because it's been given me the something to continue to work on in this program because the program I'm told is, is a journey, not a destination. And I'm a work in progress. And um, six and seven give me the instructions on how to go back, identify what's wrong, ask for help to fix them. And then, um, Either make a change or not. Step eight, I was smart enough not to burn my step four when I read my step five. So I had my step eight already written out and um, my sponsor gave me some direction and I made a few calls, made a few amends. Um, some amends I didn't make for whatever reason. And um, God put situations in front of me that allowed me to make those amends. Two weeks before my father died, it was my birthday and my wife and I went up and met with him and there were some people at his house that were just annoying us. So we all left and we found ourselves at this cemetery and uh, we sat there for like two, two and a half hours. 
and just had this very in-depth, beautiful conversation. And I was able to make amends to my dad for many of the things that I had done. And so when he died two weeks later, suddenly, I was, I was current with him. How does that happen? You know, step nine, um, step 10, you know, it's, uh, I don't take a personal inventory every day, but I do recognize when I'm wrong and um, promptly admitted it. And uh, when I'm at my best, when I do. And um, I'm so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous and the people that came before me and that this is a one day at a time program. I love all the stuff, all of the little sayings in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, you don't drink even if your ass falls off. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but, you know, um, Tom number three of your one, two, three is three-legged stool. My buddy, Bill Carroll, which I'm sure some of you know, talked about Alcoholics Anonymous as a three-legged stool. And I'll end with this. And it's written on our coins, um, unity, service, and recovery. And my, my life, both my personal life, my business life, my emotional life, my spiritual life, everything about me sits on the table of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if I put anything before this program, kiss it goodbye. Thank you for my 14 years, everybody. And thank you for asking me to share.